Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Today's episode is once again an installment of Podmas, but I feel like I should just reintroduce uh, the point of Left POC, um, give you a little bit of background, and then I'll switch into what we're doing today for Podmas. So just for the folks who are new out there and listening to this podcast for the first time, hi, I'm Wendy Muse, as I already said. Um, I have been doing this podcast since 2017. Um, and the project actually started at the end of 2016. Um, so the point of it literally is to discuss the history of leftists of color from the U.S. and around the world. Um, and we talk about primarily those who are to the left of the Democratic Party. So when I talk about left POC, I'm literally meaning um, socialists, communists, um, you know, to a, of a variety of different styles and degrees, because I know those come in many forms, anti-imperialists, um, anarchists in some cases as well. So we're, we're talking about people who have radical politics, right? Um, and I would say that one of the most difficult things about doing this kind of project is the simple fact that like people don't know about some of the folks we talk about or some of the issues we discuss. Um, and so it's really important to always engage them despite their not always being the most clickbaity um, issues or people. Um, this is at the end of the day about um, history and it's a learning podcast. So that's, that's the point of it first and foremost. Um, also as a reminder for folks, we have all these sub series within the left pocket project podcast. So beyond just our discussions with inter- in terms of interviews, um, with scholars and activists who talk about the history of leftists of color, um, in their work, we also do a series called reading revolution where we read and discuss, um, books or articles or, um, essays or speeches that were written by, or that inspired leftists of color. Um, throughout time. Uh, we also have a subseries called Comrade Mommy, in which I discuss um, the trials and tribulations of being a parent, but also primarily as a kind of counterweight to some of the hyper-capitalist, um, you know, almost arguably white supremacist, hyper-religious um, mom blogs and content in general, like parent media in general out there, which is really has a lot of problems. Um, so after I became a mom and I noticed this being an issue, I decided to make this a subseries. Um, and it's also kind of a guide for parents who are looking for not only content um, that's not, you know, hyper-capitalist laden, but also that offers some techniques and ideas about, you know, parenting in the world that we live in, but from a leftist perspective. Um, and how to keep those things sort of rooted in our parenting. Um, there's also a, another series or sub-series called Left POC of the Week, which I actually just started during Podmas, but that I've been doing online for a while. Um, but it's the first time that I've done it as part of the podcast, where I choose a leftist of color for a week uh, that I focus on and talk about their life, their work, um, their ideology, etc. Um, and... 
then we also are going to be starting a new set of subseries after Podmas is done. We may introduce it during Podmas, um, but that's going to be our 101 series where we talk about particular concepts on the left that there's sometimes confusion or controversy over. Um, so we'll be talking about those and having on people, some of whom are experts in those fields, um, to discuss those issues. So that will be out soon, maybe during Podmas if I have the time, um, but if not, after that for sure. So on that note, um, speaking of having time, it's 11.15 right now, and as per usual, it was basically around 11 when I had a chance to actually sit down and record one of these things, um, because the day is just, the days are always so, <laughs> so busy, um, either busy from my commuting and school-related work, um, busy from my, and when I say school-related work, I'm talking about my teaching work, um, busy from working with my daughter, busy from housework, domestic stuff I've got to do, you know, cleaning the house, doing the laundry, cooking, etc. And when I say cleaning the house, it's like the house is a mess. I mean, it looks like something out of hoarders, which is unfortunate, but it's just that I never have any real time to do a deep clean. Um, and it's always like triage work. And so one room of the house might be clean for about a day. And then my daughter, who's a toddler, will come in and just destroy it in about five minutes. Um, and then, yeah, and then, you know, the house is active in the sense that I'm going to be cooking and doing laundry all day long. And so those sorts of things, like if you clean the bathroom or the laundry room or whatever, or the kitchen, I mean, it gets used like a second after I clean it. So in some ways it's hard to maintain, um, the level of, of cleanliness that I would, I like strive for and dream about at this point. Um, and sometimes I watch, <laughs> like you know how some people go through and look at like homes or whatever on Zillow or they watch HG and that's sort of like their aspirational content in my case I watch people cleaning on YouTube uh, which is actually an, an interesting genre of YouTube but that does exist um, of like women cleaning their houses um, because it's called like they say um, oh what do they say they call it like cleaning inspiration or something. And I've, I, a lot of the, the ones that I've seen are like, um, they're often moms. So they're often almost always parents, um, you know, moms of multiple children in some cases. And the ones that I really like are called, they call them um, disaster cleaning, which is like <laughs> if their house is really a mess or like things have gotten really crazy and they have to clean up. And, you know, for them, their disaster clean is like my every single day clean like it's that bad right now the house is just it's just crazy and we live in a very old house that's still in the process technically of being like needs renovation um so we have to have stuff painted and we haven't you know only one room has been painted in the whole house which is my daughter's room and like I guess two the downstairs bathroom um and it's an old house houses from the 1850s so we did like a gut reno of the house and then we bought it for cheap and renovated it, um, but did it to like still look like its old self. Um, so a lot of the renovations we did blended in very old um, styles with somewhat new ones. I mentioned all of this to say, though, that because of the style of houses, we live in Baltimore, and I'm sure you all have seen the kind of typical architecture here, row houses, brownstones, that kind of thing. Um, and so if you're familiar with that, you know that these houses are... Um, or, you know, then you know what they look like. And so when I say I have a three-story house, I'm not talking about a McMansion, okay? So I'm not, we're not like balling like that. Um, but the house does have three stories, but like on each floor, there are, you know, 
like two big rooms or whatever. It's not like a, like a mansion or anything, but it's a lot to clean. Um, it's a lot to clean. It's difficult to clean in a house that's this, it, that has this height because you have to like lug cleaning supplies on each floor and the vacuum on each floor. And it's just, it's just a nightmare to clean in general. Um, if you leave something downstairs or upstairs, you know, it just like throws everything off and yeah. And then like add a toddler to that, add another human being to that. Um, you know, my husband in this case, who doesn't clean, unfortunately, and really should be cleaning, but doesn't, um, let's just keep it real. Um, so, and usually if he does do something domestic, it like makes things worse, not better. Um, so helping is, yeah. Anyway, uh, that's the story for another day. We're going to talk about maybe, um, but those of you who've listened to the comrade mommy series or who just like know me or have seen some of my commentary on social media, you know, that I'm, I'm like, I'm in an uphill battle right now against my own house and I can't enjoy my house because every time I think I have a chance to clean, something happens. Or every time I think I have some free time, something happens with my daughter or something happens with school or something happens. You know, there's always like some, something that happens. And so this week, um, I mean, this is not going to be a, I don't think this is going to be a comrade mommy episode, but I just mentioned that all of this to say that that's why at 11 o'clock, that's like the earliest I can really sit down and do these things because for the rest of the day, I am doing something related to the house or my child um, or school or work, you know. Um, so here I am. It's 1120 now, <laughs> now that I've rambled for five minutes. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to talk about today. I didn't want to do another Comrade Mommy episode just because I've done those. Um, I think I've done one or two already for, for Podmas. Um, and I already did a Left POC of the Week episode I already read a selection for Reading Revolution for the Podmas series. Um, so I might do just like a content, a general political and history kind of content mixed together um, episode today. I'm not really sure yet. I'm still thinking about it as I speak. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot going on in terms of um, social media and things I could talk about that are out there on the Twitter sphere. But because I'm a historian, I think I have a tendency to kind of Sometimes wanting to, I want to refrain from talking about things or having a knee-jerk reaction, of course, beyond just Twitter, right? Like, I can tweet and that's my reaction, that's enough. But in terms of putting it on the podcast, you know, do I find it worthy enough to talk about and make a whole episode about all the time? And not necessarily, right? There are some things that I refrain from discussing that I feel like other people are going to cover ad nauseum as well and that there's no reason for me to add to um, or to to necessarily chime in on because it's going to be just a repetition, like a repeat of the same opinions um, from the left just in my voice. And I don't think it's necessary to add to that. Um, So that's why sometimes it's, it's difficult to come up with issues because I, at least off off the cuff, um, because I don't necessarily want to sit here and like discuss something that's that's going to be discussed a lot today or tomorrow or like within the week. Um, but what I will say is I want to I think I want to talk about a general theme, um, and that theme is professionalization. And I'm I think back. So this is connected to something that's going on on Twitter right now. But I I think back in particular. Um, to a comment that Joy James made once, just sort of, um, it, she was doing a, a 
a speech at Brown University. And for those of you who don't know Joy James, check her out. Like I mentioned, I kind of mentioned her in passing a lot, but I don't think I've ever really like encouraged people to go read her or watch her videos. So please go do that. She's an amazing scholar. She writes on a variety of different things. Um, but her main focus is, has been a lot on um, prison abolition and, um, you know, like, just like rights of, of the poor and the oppressed. And she has a speech that she gives at Brown from a couple years ago where she talks about the sort of professionalization process of Angela Davis and how and it's much more deep than I'm going to be able to convey here. So I'll be sure to link it in the show notes for those of you who are interested in checking it out, you know, definitely do that. Um, but she talks about this process of pre professionalization, right? The transferal between being an activist. So the kind of transition, I should say, sorry, the transition from being an activist to being an academic and how, um, and like a professional academic, you know, I'm not talking about being an activist who also educates, I mean, literally like going into higher education as a professor, um, finishing a PhD and doing that. And she talks about the transition and how you can kind of see, you can observe that transition in real time. If you look at, at Angela's past and, and her involvement with, um, you know, political prisoners and things like that. And then how she slowly sort of transitions into this professional while still maintaining um, the outward, uh, sorry, there are people outside talking, but still maintaining this kind of outward image as a radical, as someone to look to as a force of kind of far left ideology and, um, you know, activism. And, but at the same time existing and working within a system, an institution in particular, that's incredibly, you know, aligned with, uh, capitalism and, these kind of old ideas of elitism and things like that. That's changing, of course, but I think in some ways it's changing in the same way that we're seeing corporations change by having more people of color in their ads or gay couples in their ads or immigrants in their ads, but not necessarily changing their, um, their approach to the bottom line, right? Like not changing their not, – not giving any attention to workers' rights or, you know, like things like that. Um, so I think that that, in that sense, you know, like the ivory tower, if you will, or like academia has become a space that's definitely more diverse, not as diverse as it probably should be, but it's become more diverse over time. You see more, um, people of color in, in professorships and things like that. But, um, you know, I think there are some really serious limits that I don't know if, academia is necessarily ready to address, deal with. Um, I know that there are some academics, um, you know, one of them that I think of immediately is like Sharice Burden-Selly comes to mind. She's someone who I think really kind of, she lives her principles, right? Like she's an active, she's, she's an active person on Twitter. So by the way, follow her, please. Um, it's at Dr. CBS. She's also been a guest on our show several times. Um, but she's someone who is in academia who's, who's very, you know, connected to that world, who writes uh, prolifically. Um, she now has a show and podcast and all of that. Thank God. Uh, it's definitely welcome, a welcome alternative to some of the stuff out there. But I would say that, you know, she's a good example of someone I think 
in my opinion, thus far, what I've seen, at least, um, who is truly connected and making connections to community and things that interest her in terms of foreign policy and stuff like that, um, and making connections between her work and the real world. But there are a lot of, and, and like doing so from a very leftist perspective, right? Like not, she, she doesn't play around. She's not a liberal and that's a good thing. And like, she's very much to their left and I think lives that, um, but, you know, I think one of the challenges that I see as someone who's in the process of, you know, finishing a dissertation and applying for jobs and things like that, one of the issues I grapple with all the time is looking at the other side of things, right? Like once people get over that fence, so like right now we're on one side of the fence, the process of getting over that fence, graduating, getting a job and becoming part of the professional um, arena in academia is very different, right? Um, once you're on that other side, it's as if people go through, like Joy James mentioned, this sort of transformation of sorts where they become slightly more conservative, maybe not noticeably so, but over time, yes, um, they dress differently, they sound differently, the issues they care about change, you know, their way of addressing and tackling these issues changes. Um, you see a sort of reservedness and fear of talking about certain things, especially if they're on the market in hopes of getting tenure, which nowadays is like getting worse, right? Like the tenure is becoming an even less common practice now in academia. And some people are even concerned about tenure lasting at all over the next few years. But even people who are tenured nowadays, especially if recently so, are still at risk um, if they talk about certain things or if they do certain things uh, in the community that could be frowned upon by the board or by parents of students who are, you know, paying big bucks for their students, their kids' education. Um, or donors, you know, there's so many people that you're kind of accountable to, but that are invisible um, and that you have to think about at all times whenever you say anything. Um, you know, and I think that that is a really heavy weight. That's a heavy burden for people to bear when they are those who are on the left and they want a career in academia. They want to be able to reach students. They want to be able to engage their research, but they also have the challenge of kind of shutting themselves up, right? Being silent about what they care about. And what's frustrating about it is this, there's this very um, fictional idea of what academia is, right? So Hollywood presents one version of academia where everyone is filthy rich. Of course, there are no adjuncts, right? Like no one lives in their car. No one is struggling. Um, everyone's rich and everyone's privileged and everyone lives in these gorgeous houses like off the university lawn practically um, and has all their resources and, and has their needs met and beautiful skin and beautiful hair and they're doing great. Um, and they like sit around in these these old, um, you know, uh, salon style, uh, living rooms with a furnace or a, like a, a fireplace and just rows and rows of books and like a cigar. And, you know, it's just a very hyper fictionalized idea of what academia is, especially today, maybe a hundred years ago, it was like that, but it's not like that anymore. Um, and it's, you know, I've seen, I've seen really funny portrayals of like TAs having, a lot of wealth as well, which is also hilarious as, cause like, as we speak, there are still TAs that are trying to rally, uh, to unionize and to get paid for their labor. Um, 
you know, it's, it's not an easy job. It's not easy work. It requires a lot of time and energy and effort and lack of sleep and just like not being able to take care of yourself health wise and a lot of issues, you know, you, you work really hard and these people deserve to be paid for their work. And I'm fortunately at a school that has fought for, had fought for many years for unionization, got it a few years back and now has, um, a fairly, you know, good, very good union and we have rights as, as student workers. But I think that, um, you know, there's a lot to be said about how little, um, academic freedom there really is. And especially in terms of speech in academic spaces, um, how people are ostracized for being anti-colonialists, for example, especially when it comes to places like Palestine, um, they are, you know, there's a limit to how much you can say and how you can say it. And um, so, for example, I'll give you an example, just a hypothetical here, but you could be anti-Trump, right? You can be anti-Trump. You could be against uh, everything he did. And that's almost like a given, right? Like in academia that you would be anti-Trump is sort of like Hollywood in that sense. You know, like, of course you're anti-Trump, right? And the people who are pro-Trump keep quiet, um, which is probably for the best. But <laughs> but if you're to the left of that kind of, um, if, if you're, let's say you are anti-Trump, right? So I'm anti-Trump, but I'm also like anti-Clinton. And I was also like, I was anti-Clinton and I'm anti-Biden and I'm against all of these kinds of people because I see them in many ways as two sides of the same coin. Many of the um, policies they enact are equally as bad, if not more harmful in some cases than others, you know, so it's really not, I don't see them as, um, I don't see corporate Democrats, for example, as a means of lessening harm towards marginalized groups, because they rarely do that, um, despite appearances and, and words that speak to that, but not necessarily actions. But, you know, doing, having just that kind of basic approach to the two-party system is kind of, it puts you on the outs in a lot of ways in academia and academic spaces. We are expected to just sort of be a milquetoast liberal. And if you aren't a liberal, I think the best that you can do if you're on the left is like, like, first of all, you can't, you wouldn't want to say you're a communist, right? Um, because that will make people go crazy in terms of like parents of students and things like that. But if you, if you are a leftist, you have to be like a warm and fuzzy leftist. You know, I think of people like Cornell West, who's another person that comes up with regard to Angela Davis, too, um, in that he's involved in something right now that that I can maybe talk about on another day. Um, I'm not going to get into it here because, like I said, it's one of those really hot topics that everyone's already talking about. And I don't need to add to this discussion um, in that way. But, you know, he's he's like he's kind of like a, I don't know. I don't want to say he's watered down. That's not what I mean when I say he's more, um, you know, approachable or gentle or whatever. But I think people kind of look at Cornell West as like cuddly, you know? I mean, he says things that are, that are, um, harsh about systems and stuff, but he always kind of coats it in this, like my brother and my sister, we're all children of God kind of stuff like this rhetoric that softens what he's saying. Um, and sometimes he engages in practices often, arguably that, <laughs> that kind of undermine his supposed left ideology. Um, and, you know, I think we have to always be careful about not, about not idolizing people, um, because everyone has flaws and everyone has a they need a paycheck at the end of the day and engage in behaviors and practices that may not be um, 
what I would personally be interested in doing or favor. But, you know, I think sometimes what we consider radical in our society already has limits. Um, it's not as radical as we'd like to think, especially in the U.S. But also, I think in academia in particular, the, the idea of radicalism is so limited. I mean, it is it is a space where liberals thrive and where people who are willing to, you know, pay attention to things like race and class and ethnicity and immigration status and sexual orientation, stuff like that, which are all important to note and and make note of and care about. So I'm not saying those are not important issues, just to be clear. But I think once you like check a certain number of boxes in terms of what you're willing to recognize, then you're good. And you don't have to go further than that, right? Like you don't have to push for economic equality and you don't have to work towards that in your academic spaces and you don't have to um you know you're not expected to like make it so that your students can survive the year despite having to pay in the 70 and 80 thousands of dollars to to go to these schools um you don't have to worry about facilitating means by which your student can get free your students can get free textbooks or a place to sleep at night. Like these are worries that we don't have to think about, right? Um, supposedly. And we're just supposed to treat all of our students the same and not really worry that that there's a lot of inequality even among our amongst our students that's not being acknowledged by the university or alleviated necessarily, especially not in the way that it should be. Um and you know, I don't know. I, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I feel like they're very much um you know, there are penalties if you go beyond what is considered the, the sort of normative liberalism of, of the academic space. Not so much for students, but definitely for professors. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm still trying to work through this because I think it, it adds to, you know, my worries, right? Like I worry sometimes if I'm, if I'm being, Um, if I'm going to necessarily deal with discrimination on the base of my political views, if someone will look at what I post on Twitter or read what I, or listen to what I say here sometimes, for example, in my criticism of, of both liberals and conservatives and say, oh, it's a little too much, right? Like she's a little, she's a little too much for us. And that's not even the tip of the iceberg in terms of what radicalism is, right? Like I am very mild compared to some people in their, in their political stances um, by, by comparison. And yet even my politics would, might be considered, you know, enough to make me persona non grata in, in academic spaces in a professional sense. I also think a lot about, you know, appearances, right? What you're expected to look like how you're supposed to perform in that way as well, the kinds of clothes you're supposed to wear and, um, you know, what kind of car you drive or briefcase you have or what are these like silly things, but they're, they're indicative of certain expectations in these spaces as well, despite all the nonsense, you know, claptrap about, oh, we care about people of different economics groups and economic groups and whatever. But in reality, you know, there are expectations. There's a, there are other expectations about you having a lot of free time to write and not having children or not. Um, there's a lot of expectations about just getting up and moving wherever you're needed in academia and not really getting to choose where you work, but having to go where you're needed. And, um, you know, the relative ease at which someone with no family or, or who has economic um, prosperity going on for them can just up and do 
but people who are poorer or who and or who have families um, who are in academia can't exactly just up and leave where they've had their whole lives for the past I don't know how many years. Um, so there are definitely aspects of of this field that frustrate me and that anger me um, and that I'm just you know I'm trying to grapple with as I enter a stage of you know this this idea of like becoming the academic right professionalization and what I keep noticing over and over is that those who progress through this process are those who are most willing to bite their tongues who are most willing to not challenge that much um, the status quo, uh, who are not willing to go that far into the information or the backgrounds or lives of the people that they're detailing in their work. And even in their work, often sort of um, regurgitate liberal values and ideas about how the world can change and and those limits, um, even when they're talking about radical figures. And so there are there are lots of problems there, and and I'm being somewhat vague um, because, like I said, I don't want to really go into all the details right now of what I've been seeing online, and may go into on in a later date. Um, but I just think that, you know, nothing frustrates me more than than when people have the opportunity to work with and write about radical ideas and radical people figures, you know, and they water down their message and they. Um, they themselves profess politics that sometimes are antagonistic to the very people that they interview for their work. And I can't help but feel like that's a betrayal of sorts, right? But it's also, you know, some people argue that academics are supposed to have this distance between themselves and their work. Um, And the people that they consider part of their work are separate entities, right? So they don't see them as like a continuum of their own politics. And I don't know, I, I, that, that false sense of objectivity is a problem because it's not objective when it comes time for them to, for these professors to engage in practices, like I said, that are antagonistic toward, antagonistic toward their interlocutors, their subjects of their research, you know? So I don't know, lots of thoughts. Maybe I'll process this in a better, clearer way for another episode. Um, but this is kind of just where I'm going, what I'm thinking about today, um, and kind of wondering what's what's this, how, how, I guess, liberalism is stifling in many ways in academic spaces, among other spaces, and what can be done about that, um, how that can be changed, if it can be changed, and if change, you know, if, if, academics are able to finally let go of the sort of latent sense of American exceptionalism that they have or their latent sense of, you know, (laughs) faith in the markets and whatever, if that day will ever come, um, what will academia look like and will, or will it continue to be what it is now and just kind of go further down that path where we are really good about or get better about, you know, racial and gender and, and whatnot, um, equality, but where we don't have a matching sense of urgency around economic inequality and alleviating that um, as it gives children or students in general an opportunity to to learn and to potentially change their lives. 
So anyway, lots of thoughts, but on that note, I'm going to close because it's getting late. Um, and I hope that as per usual, you all are all taking care of yourselves, that you're being safe, um, and that you're taking care of those around you. And, um, yeah, I, I hope you all have a good night. I will post another Vlogmas, or not Vlogmas, oh my god, I'm talking like a YouTuber, another Podmas, there we go, episode tomorrow, of course, um, so be on the lookout for those, and we will be having interviewees, I promise, we'll have guests, I'll have Richard back, etc. It's just been easier for me to record these at night, um, because my daughter is sleeping, as I mentioned before, she's been at home this past this week because um, there was a COVID scare at her school. Two kids were diagnosed with COVID, and so she's been here every day. And I haven't, I don't want to like schedule a an interview on a day when I know my daughter's going to be here, or like I'm going to have to work with or do things um, related to her, and I won't have time to sit down and do an interview and then let alone edit it after the fact. Um, so I'm kind of waiting for those. I'm front loading miss with a lot of personal episodes but then after that we will have interviews and some some other stuff going on so with that said again everyone take care have a good night and i'll see you tomorrow bye-bye